This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. And you can hear The Literary Life each week, brought to you by The Literary Hub. If you have not been to The Literary Hub, you must make sure that you go to lithub.com and find out about all the great books that are coming out, all their wonderful articles that they write. And not only that, but you can also hear and click on the section called LitHub Radio where you'll not only get this wonderful podcast, but you'll get other wonderful podcasts as well, all about books and literature, and mostly about things that you might not have heard about, but you should know about. And that's the beauty of Literary Hub. It brings together all kinds of information from everywhere, talking about what we're talking about today, which is the literary life. My guest today is Pablo Medina. Pablo is an old friend. I think Pablo's been here just about for every one of his books. He's the author of 18 books. So, you know, that's a lot. That's a lot of appearances at Books and Books. It's 18 books of poetry, fiction, nonfiction. He also has done translation. And as a poet and a novelist and a translator, he has worked across so many different kinds of, kinds of genres that he, at one point, is on the board of directors of AWP, if I'm mm-hmm, not mistaken. Mm-hmm. He's also taught, and he now lives in southern Vermont, and it's just great to have you with us today, Pablo. Welcome Thank you, back Mitch. to Books Thank and you. Books. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. It's, you know, I love this bookstore. It's almost like home. Well, I appreciate that. I know that last night you had an, an amazing reading with mm-hmm. Anna Menendez, yes. yeah, who's the terrific. great Anna Menendez, who lives here yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. And... I thought, you know, I read this book and I loved it. And it has such a remarkable narrator. So I thought that listeners out there, before we talk about the book and talk about your career, I thought we'd just give them a little bit of a flavor of the Cuban comedy, which is your new novel. Okay, so this is uh, from the end of the first chapter. Uh, And I'll just read, I won't explain anything. Elena, thin and dark and furtive, walks slowly toward Daniel Arcilla, holding the sheaf of palms before her. He blew a thick puff of smoke upward and looked down at her. And what is this? he asked, smiling like a shark. Palms for the contest, she said. How charming, for the contest, he said, taking the manuscript from her and passing it behind him to his assistant, a woman in glasses who seemed troubled and overworked. And how is it we haven't met before, he added. 
Nervous as she was, Elena hesitated, moved her head slowly from side to side, and she was about to turn away without responding when the voice came from deep inside her, bursting past her timidity. Because an army of ants is crawling over the fried eggs my mother made for lunch and no one has eaten. Because there is a gulf of deep water between truth and misery. Because the rooster has died and the hens are alive, clucking for love. And the deep trough of the valley is filling with young men and all the battles of the world have gotten together to conspire against sleep. Because there is a white sheet hanging from the clothesline by the banana trees and the sun is going down and a lone egret is flying slowly across the reddening sky. Daniel Arcia strained to maintain his smile. He brought the cigar to his mouth, blew out more smoke and nodded. He took Elena's poems back from his assistant and went inside the bus. Excellent. That gives. I hope that gives everyone out there an idea of just who you're going to live with mm -hmm. when you read this book, mm -hmm. the Cuban comedy. You know, Juno Diaz says about it, which is something that I agree with wholeheartedly. Says that Pablo Medina is a literary magician, and the Cuban comedy is his finest spell—a luminous novel of poets trying to write and love their way through a revolution. Witty, wily, and pulsing with indomitable life. Juno got it right, but how would you describe it? Well, that's a very good description, very flattering description. Uh, he's very kind to have said that. But the Cuban comedy is all of it. I mean, it's a love story. It's a story about uh, poetry and poets and, and how they make their way in the world and how they develop. It's a story about revolution. It's a story about war. And uh, it, it's also an homage to dissidents. Uh, so that was very much on my mind when I started writing this book. Uh, I'd met a number of Cuban dissidents, also actually uh, Soviet dissidents back in the day. And they all had this thing in common, which is a very, very strong need to stand up uh, and say what they wanted to say and needed to say. Uh, and I still remember when I met Joseph Brodsky, it was very much that way. If his fear, if he was afraid, he didn't show it. Uh, but I'm, I'm sure he must have been afraid at some point, and he actually did stand up to the Soviet system. Uh, in similar ways that these characters here, who are composites of, of many people whom I have met in the past, are uh, standing up to a system that doesn't tolerate uh, doesn't tolerate literature, doesn't tolerate uh, original ideas, and so. And at the center of it all is Elena. Elena is is the main character. Curiously, it's someone who was a minor character when I first started writing this book back in two thousand four. The main character was Daniel Arcia. Oh, is that right? Yes. And so, through a process of revision and reworking and so on, and suggestions from my dear former agent, Elaine Markson, to whom uh, this book is dedicated in part, I was able to reach this, uh, the focus on, on Elena. Uh, oh, I can't character. imagine it not being Elena. Because yeah, right, right. Yeah. She starts off as such an innocent. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because when, when Elaine Markson first told me you should write it from her point of view, I said, no, I can't do that. I can't write from from." a woman's perspective. But indeed, the woman's perspective was already in the book. I just had to kind of pull away and tear away at everything else that was clouding it. And so she came up 
And yeah, you, I can't imagine it being written any other way. <laughs> and did it always start out to, it's it's really a novel, it's a journey. It's mm, a novel of, mm -hmm. of someone's journey yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah, right. Did it start out that way as well? No. You changed No, it started out with well. him. Right in Havana? No, it started out with him in exile looking at a snowstorm. Ah, yeah, interesting. Uh, and 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 then Elena comes in, but uh, so now it starts with Elena. Where it starts with Elena uh, in in a imaginary town of Piedra Negra, in, in somewhere in Cuba, uh, and it 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 uh, just describes the uh, turbulent times that she's witnessing uh, around her, uh, which is a revolution. Uh, and and also her domestic life and a relationship with between uh, uh, with with her parents. Uh, her father is a producer of uh, firewater. This this brandy that, that I want to know if that was based on anything because that sounded pretty remarkable. No, <laughs> brandy, the, 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 <laughs> the brandy itself. The, the no, firewater. It, it, it's not based on 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 <laughs> anything except that uh, there was a time when uh, in in Cuba people were trying to make liquor from anything. Right. Uh, and this and was from sugarcane. This is sugarcane, yeah. Yeah, it's just a, a refined firewater. What I loved about the town the, in the early part of the novel is that the town is both the center of everything mm. and it's in the middle of nowhere. It's in the, the middle of time. literally in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, yes. but everything happens. You know, mm -hmm. Every, you know, uh, yeah. people from the mountains come down. And the, the poets come in. Poets come in. Yep. Everything is happening in this mm -hmm. middle of nowhere mm -hmm. town. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. Elena... But poetry, where yeah. does that poetry Elena, come Elena's, from? Elena's been writing poetry uh, as, as, as young people tend to do. It takes place in the late 50s uh, when the, the revolution. Late 50s, right, right. When the revolution just, was just. When the revolution, happened. and then after, immediately after, in, into the 60s. So she's writing poems, and one day she, she, she realizes that her, her poetry is just empty and it really has to come from the inside and it has to surface without any adornment. Uh, and that's when she starts writing the real stuff, the real serious stuff that drives everybody crazy around her. Her mother hates it, and her best friend uh, also doesn't like it very much because it makes her want to throttle her dog right. um, and smear herself with mud. So that was uh, another little addition to it. And then, of course, once she hears about this national poetry contest, she gets a group of poems together. And hands them to Daniel Arcia, who is the poet, the great poet, uh, who has come into the town with a group of it young itinerant poets. Well, and that 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 sheaf of poems that she hand hands into Daniel is because there's a contest going on. There's a contest, a national poetry contest is going on, and they're collecting manuscripts to see who wins it. So, and just to give you an idea, she doesn't hear back. For almost a year, uh, yeah, I guess, for if my, not yeah, a year. many months. Yeah. And in the meanwhile, her life goes on with all kinds of fantastical things that happen mm -hmm. during that mm -hmm. year, mm -hmm. including getting married. She and, gets married to uh, one of the veterans. You can't give too many spoilers, right? Because, right. Yeah, you know, and uh, becomes a widow, and so on. You just gave one up. What? <laughs> but it happens. It's, it's pretty actually. Early. It's it's uh, it's okay. It's how we get there that matters. Yeah. Yeah. And how we get there is where exactly? Well, she eventually goes to, she wins the National Poetry Contest and goes to Havana to pick up the prize and prepare the manuscript for publication. And that's when she and Daniel become involved romantically. Uh, and the story moves from there. And I'm not giving where, anything else away. No, let's I'm give kidding. nothing else away from there. But <laughs> but that's where you that's where the whole composite of dissidents come through. Yes, right. And we both 
do we want to talk about some of them? I mean, I can think of, I don't know if he's one that you had in mind, but Heberto Padilla, for instance. Yeah, I, I, was uh, I, I was I, I was warned by my editor not to mention any names. Oh, but, I'm but, sorry. Yes, because <laughs> possible repercussion. But uh, but it's a compo- these are composites. Right. Uh, yeah, and Padilla's in there, and so is Reynaldo Arenas, right. and, and so on and so forth. So they're, they're really composites of many people whom I met personally and had dealings with. And it's uh, the stifling of mm-hmm. the stifling of, 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 of speech, of, of, of speech, creativity, yeah. uh, and then there are artists who make compromises. Yes, right? right, right, and and they do for reasons which are understandable. They're trying to survive in a system that is uh, uh, very, very tough and rigid and and intractable. But nevertheless, they're forced to uh, into in, into into situations that are not very tasteful. And uh, they, they're forced to betray their friends. This is a common occurrence. Um, one of the books that I, I still keep very close uh, to me is a, a book by Miłosz, the Polish poet called The Captive Mind, in which he talks about the, the consequence of uh, an oppressive system on the minds of writers and intellectuals. Yeah, and so it was a great book when I first read it, and I, I keep referring to it. And it, it, I think it runs underneath this one. You and know, you way. kept that in mind mm-hmm. as, you were, mm-hmm. as you were writing this. You also have an epigram by um, Jacques Prévert. Jacques Prévert, yeah. Um, you want to read it? Sure. Tell us what you meant by it. Yeah. Be warned, old men. Be warned, heads of family. The days when you gave your sons to the country as you give bread to pigeons. Those days will never come again. Well, I, I, it, it had the right ring to it, first of all. It, um, uh, I've been reading Prévert, and so I was familiar with his work. And it also has a, it has a relevance in terms of um, what it is that families go through, because this is also a story of a family. How it is that family, what families go through when, when uh, they're forced to take sides and they're forced to be uh, in circumstances that they don't understand in the first place with ideas that are not relevant to them, uh, they wind up uh, being torn apart by those external forces. Talk, let, let's talk a little bit because for, for lots of people, you know, for us in Miami and for so many of us who, you know, grew up here and who understand the Cuban comedy in mm-hmm. a sense, talk a little bit about the arc of what intellectuals or writers or artists had to go through there. Yeah. Well, uh, initially, of course, many, most, I think the overwhelming majority of writers and intellectuals in Cuba supported the revolution um, and they were fully behind it. Many of them uh, uh, joined the resistance and then when the revolution triumphed, they were given posts in in the government or in the press that was controlled by the government and so on and so forth. And they did this faithfully and eagerly uh, with the best of intentions in mind. Uh, There was a process uh, whereby uh, they realized that the uh, uh, the system that was being imposed was not a system was was not a system that allowed for any tolerance. As they uh, as they uh, began to see this and began to experience uh, this directly, many of them started criticizing the system. Uh, as a result of which, they were marginalized, marginalized, or they were uh, jailed. Sent, jailed, in some cases executed. Exiled. And exiled. Uh, and so this was a, a kind of a cleansing project that took place. And if you read the history of all Marxist Leninist revolutions, there's a parallel there uh, that you need to cleanse the, the previous order in order to impose the new one. Uh, 
And that's very much what happened. Um, unless there were, unless you, the, the writers and the intellectuals made a, a compromise with the system and were allowed to, to kind of live their lives uh, with it. But eventually many of them suffered uh, no matter what happened, uh, particularly after the 1970s and the Padilla affair, when, when there were, uh, Cuba became a, a, a neo-Stalinist state. Uh, for for several years through through the seventies and eighties um, and so on, yeah, and and we we saw a, a gigantic um, exodus obviously happened during Mariel as well. Mariel, that's and when Ronaldo Reynas came. People and, and so on. My, my sense of the, it is, the one thing I want to say though is that of course you know intellectuals and writers and and artists in general uh, are. Are, are praised for their dissidents, but there are many, many more people on, uh, who are anonymous and who suffer of in course, silence. Of course. Uh, and I think that they are the real heroes because they get nothing out of it except their own sense of doing the right thing. Well, which, is, which gets me to the title of the book. <clears throat> you don't call it a Cuban comedy. You no. call it the Cuban, the Cuban comedy. comedy. So basically this story is to stand for those other people as well. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and, and in effect, Elena and Blanco and Daniel Arcilla are really, uh, in a way, archetypes of characters who run headlong into the wall, of the intractable wall of, of uh, revolutionary ideology. The, the ideology and the state and the 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 way that it becomes inextricable with everyday living. Right, yeah. And yeah. it restricts everyday living mm -hmm. in a mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. uh, much as you might agree and, and admire the, the ideals that the revolution was based on, and it's, they're hard to argue with, uh, the, 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 the imposition of the system was what created all of the difficulties for people, people who thought that um, they were allowed, they should be allowed to speak their mind and to live their lives without any uh, intrusion from the state. Yeah, well, I mean, that is the case with so many idealistic pursuits that begin that mm -hmm, way, mm -hmm. where they become perverted yeah, in right, one way or another. Right. Um, we're all after, we're, we're human beings. We're fallible. We're, we're driven by forces which are sometimes light, sometimes dark. Um, we cannot ever forget that. Jury still out as to which, which, uh, which will come out ahead in the end, the light forces or the dark forces. Well, I, I, I suspect as I've been, been struggling with what we're going through in our own country mm, right now, Oh, dear. Yeah. That we are going to be struggling with the light and the dark forever. Yeah, for some, <laughs> yeah, for quite a, quite a long time. And, and, and frankly, uh, the, dark, the darkness has finally kind of become evident in this country where, where it perhaps was hidden before. It's now in the, on, fully on the surface. Pablo and I are speaking um, in the shadow of what just happened in El Paso in Ohio as well, in Dayton. Dayton, Ohio. And so today is a day in which so many are finally speaking out. Yes. And calling what's been going on mm. and taking our president and taking people who've been silent to task. And you do that somewhat in your book as well. Well, uh, that, that, that too was part of what, what drove me to, to write this book. Back in, talk about that. Back in 2004, I was, um, again, having, having met many dissidents, as I said before, 
it, it was something that, that preoccupied me. Uh, I wanted to write about this and I wanted to write about it in, in, in the flesh. That is to say, not as, as a history, not as a, a social tract or anything. I wanted real characters uh, living through this, uh, these difficulties. These are, as you say, as you well point out, these are difficulties that are not just particular to any one system. Uh, and we're seeing them now. We're seeing we're seeing the government uh, act in ways that are hardly admirable. It, it it behooves us, it behooves everyone to be on the watch and to uh, be aware, uh, and and to call for what should be done. And also, let, let's let's broaden this a little bit. Let's talk about the role of the writer in Latin American culture in general, mm -hmm. the role of the writer as activist, the role of a writer right. as someone who does speak out. Right. Even there are many writers who've become, you know, politicians. Like yes, Vargas Llosa mm -hmm. and others. Yeah, and there are others. Too. Uh, Allende. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So talk, uh, talk Neruda a little. Was a Neruda senator was a perfect example. Uh, and and diplomats and so on like Octavio Paz was a yeah. diplomat. Romulo Gallegos in Venezuela was actually president of Venezuela at uh, one point. Well, yeah, I, um, there's a special role for writers in Latin America, and that's because uh, uh, they, they people look to them to speak the truth or to write the truth, and uh, the the the. Writer has uh, that sort of responsibility to guide, in a fictional or poetical way, depending on how how what what their medium is or what their genre is, uh, to guide the thinking of people. And this is something that we may not have here as as uh, eminently or as immediately uh, as in Latin America. But uh, it, to some degree, it's still there, um, and, and it's a it's a role that's very important in Latin America. Uh, we just mentioned several writers who who took that standard and were driven to uh, uh, speak for the people, and many of them were put down because of it. Oh, absolutely, Neruda yeah. is a perfect right, example. right, and and Miguel Hernandez in Spain, right. for example, who was a marvelous poet who died in in one of uh, Franco's prisons after the Spanish Civil War. And of course, you know, as you say, there have been voices in this country that have been very forceful in talking about. Uh, the kinds of things that you write about, yeah. and, and one talking about well, one of them, Toni Morrison. She just died. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Toni Morrison. We uh, we mourn the she loss. She took up of that standard and did it marvelous. Yeah. Well. Yeah. No. It, it's uh, it's it's very profound when it happens, mm -hmm. and when you can read yeah. someone who is writing and trying to give voice to people who don't have the voice. Right. And when a country tries to bring its political force to bear against those writers, it's even more tragic. Yeah, but as I say in a book, in the struggle between poets and princes, the poets always lose. <laughs> That's uh, right. It's true. They don't, poets don't have any power. <laughs> Uh, and by poets, I mean writers in general. They don't have any power. They're very, they're really uh, uh, at at the whim of of those who hold all the power and, unless, and often suffer. Unless they're able to keep the moonshine flowing. Yes, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and keep things keep things toned down. <laughs> right. Yeah, 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 exactly. yeah. Uh, well, let's talk about you a little bit. So. So, when did you come here to this country? I came uh, November 11th, 1960. Uh, we spent a, a couple, two, three weeks in Miami Beach 
uh, in one of the hotels right on the beach when it was just filled How with retirees from New York. I was 12. Um, and, and it was the Majestic Hotel, which is, I think, Fifth Street or something. Uh, and, and in those days, it was a very uh, affordable. I think my parents paid one, for one room, in which we all lived uh, $2 a day. Well, you know, I grew up on, on Miami Beach, yes, and I right. went to school on that. South Beach. Uh-huh. And there was, right around 1960, I was five or six in elementary school, mm-hmm. an influx of, mm-hmm. because people were mm-hmm. leaving. Mm-hmm. And Miami Beach was some of the most affordable housing, right. along with Cayocho. Yeah, yeah. Those were the most affordable yeah. places for people to live. Well, Miami Beach has changed since then. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> we should have all bought buildings <laughs> right. back really? then. <laughs> so then we, we moved to New York. After that, my father had a job in New York, so we we all uh, you know we just packed our bags and moved to New York. Which to me that was a life affirming and defining experience. <laughs> yeah, so, so you grew up in New York. Grew up in New York, yeah, and it was it was I just loved it uh, as a twelve year old kid. Uh, the city in those days was relatively safe. Actually, it's still safe. So we we my sister and I had, uh, had we just took the subway everywhere on our own. And Which part of New York? Or originally, it was the East 70s um, in Manhattan. We then moved to the Bronx uh, in my teen years when I, was, when I started high school. We moved to the Bronx. And um, then I was, uh, I was 17. My parents moved up to Westchester County. One year later, I went away to college. Have you ever <laughs> reflected on what your life would have been like and how different it would have been if you had stayed here? In Miami? In Miami. Oh, uh, y- yes. And I often uh, feel like uh, maybe that's something that I missed, not really having grown up here like many of my uh, friends uh, did. It, 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 there's a special culture here that's very interesting to me. And I, I keep, I come back. I've, Miami's sort of like a place that I'm drawn to uh, as, as if a magnet. Uh, because it's so interesting, because there's so many uh, uh, forces here that I, 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 I long to understand, I long to be a part of, but I realize that it's a little too late for me to do so. And so I've, I'm, I'm basically a creature of the Northeast United States. And you were probably not infused in a Cuban culture not as the much. way it would have been if you were yeah. here. What's curious, though, is that the Cubans in New York, when there were Cubans, in New York, there were a lot of Cubans in New York, were different from the ones here in that for two reasons. First of all, they were more liberal than the ones here. And secondly, they were, um, they, they attempted to maintain their language, their customs and so on, all much more stridently to the point where there are still people there who, is, who span, write in Spanish and so on and so forth, or writers. And um, uh, I've, I've created a bubble of culture around themselves, so as not to be not not to be corrupted, so to speak, with uh, by American did, culture. Did many who ended up in New York come prior to the revolution as well? Some did, particularly in New Jersey. Yeah. Uh, they came to work. I'm thinking of Oscar Huelos. Huelos, yeah, Huelos who came, yeah, his family he came, came prior. prior, yeah, and there was a whole group that came to New Jersey to work in the uh, uh, lace in, factories in, 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 in New Jersey, City. yeah, Union City, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. No, no, I know the, the the Miami Cuban culture is just so unique in and it's of so, itself. It's, yeah, it's fast, and now of course it's become a much broader culture. It's become a Miami Miami culture. You can't really talk about Cuban culture here. Anymore. No, 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 no. Uh, that's that's right. what's interesting to me. 
that that uh, as a friend of mine in Latin, in in uh, in Mexico said, you know, what I like about Miami is that it's so close to the United States. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, well, you know, I was listening to the some of the news about El Paso, and they were uh, somebody was talking about how, you know, the the the, the two centers of of Latin culture. <clears throat> to this person's point of view was on the border and in Miami. In Miami. Yeah. Interesting, interesting as if Miami's not on the border yeah. as well. It is it, it is, is in a way. Yeah. So that creates a sort of a yeah. culture of la frontera, you know, yeah. look at the border. It's it's there's a there's a certain culture uh that that grows out of being that, that close to the original or the, the primary culture. So I was know. writing always a part of what you did when you were young? Did you were you uh, a writer well, when you, came you know, over? you write um, without knowing and without saying, I'm going going to be a writer. You just write. I, I did. I wrote, Even as a young boy. Yeah. Uh, alongside other things. I drew. I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to do, I wanted to be an oceanographer, all these things. But by a process of elimination, everything else fell away. I was left with uh, writing. Transition to English became easy for you, or was it? A well, I had been, I had been um, in a. Uh, uh, I've been to school in Cuba in a bilingual school, and so I knew some English. I mean, I, I could get along in English. Uh, of course, New York English is very different. Until that, that, there are many Englishes in New York, and you have to sort of uh, adapt your ear to listening. Uh, where that English is coming from and how you can mimic it. I, I became a very good mimic of, of English and other languages uh, by simply living in New York. Tell me, with all of your writing as a poet, as a, as a novelist, is there one form that you enjoy, not enjoy, but in which you feel like you're able to express yourself better in one form over another? I, I think that varies from... Uh, uh, period to period. If I'm working, if I'm working on fiction, and of course, fiction is the one that I think I'm, 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 I'm uh, that captures my my inner self. But the poetry, I always go back to the poetry. Uh, and, uh, when I when I finish a, a piece of fiction, I always go back to the poetry, and I'm uh, it, it sort of nourishes me, uh, and and then and then and then it, it it infuses my fiction in in what I think are good ways. Who are some of the poets that you've studied with and other poets that you've admired as well? Well, uh, there are many. And it's uh, the, the first poet who kind of paid attention to me uh, seriously was Nicanor Parra. Uh, he was at, in New York t doing a, uh, a workshop at Columbia University. Uh, I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time, and a mutual friend sent, has showed him some of my work uh, in Spanish. I was writing in Spanish at the time. And uh, he said, why don't you ask him to the workshop? I said, okay. I was asked to be in his workshop. I, how can you say no? And so I went and I would go. I, would, I, would, I was working. I was working and I would finish at 1 o'clock and drive to New York, uh, do the workshop, which started at 6 o'clock or so for three hours, uh, go to my parents' sleep, and then drive back early in the morning to be at work the next day. I did that for, for some time. And, and Parra said, you know, he told me I was, I was kind of testing the waters with English. He said, you have to choose one language. You can't write them both. 
and uh, I sort of paid attention to him, but I, I, I also defied him. I have published two books in Spanish. <laughs> so, Tell me about your translation then. I know that you translated Cortazar, right? And no, I didn't translate Cortazar. I translated Carpentier, Alejo oh, Carpentier. Carpentier. Yeah, the right. kingdom of this world. Yes, Th yes. That was, uh, and I translated Garcia Lorca. I translated Virgilio Piñera, poetry of Virgilio Piñera, the Cuban playwright. So I've translated a number of people. Uh, I love translation. I think it's uh, something that that um, uh, keeps me on my toes uh, in terms of language. It keep it's the closest reading you do. It's it's really literally word by word and sentence by sentence. And how can I render this in English? How can I render those very very ornate sentences that uh, uh, Carpentier writes in? Uh, in English, which is, is not a language that tolerates, with few exceptions, uh, such as Faulkner and so on, tolerates those, those, uh, Baroque sentences. And so that was the challenge I had with him in translating the kingdom of this world. And I, I think it's, I pulled it off. Uh, the book is apparently doing very well. It does. It yeah. does very, very well. Yeah. Uh, so, um, I'm happy with that. And, and for Arstras and Giroud to, to kind of retire the previous translation and that my translation is the one that they're, they, they keep in print. They've always been a very smart pub. They have been. <laughs> they published my first novel. <laughs> so this book is published by a press that I've been very excited about, and it's called Unnamed Press. Out so of tell, L.A. Yeah, yeah, tell me a little bit about them. Well, They've it, been doing some amazing work, actually. Yeah, they, they're good. They're very, very responsive and attentive. Uh, Olivia Smith, who's the edit, my editor there, was just simply terrific. I uh, have loved working with her uh, and super supportive. I have no complaint. I'm very happy. Uh, uh, this this, is, this is a, was the right move for me to, to go to the unnamed. Uh, and I also have a very exciting um, uh, new uh, uh, agent who's who's so very hungry. <laughs> I like hungry people. So what's next for you, Pablo? Uh, what's next? I'm uh, the the my selected poems are coming out in 2020. So I'm I'm working on that. Uh, already signed the contract. The uh, the novel that I'm I've sort of just started um, before all this travel. Uh, it's, it's sort of a sequel to this one um, and uh, continues on with Elena in Exile, Elena in oh, Miami. Oh, really? Elena in Miami. Oh, Ooh, that's a good title. <laughs> Elena in Miami. I like that title. Oh, no, that's <laughs> exciting to mm -hmm. you. I mean, I can't tell you how much I just love the voice in this. Yeah, I, you know, the, the, the way you... You know, it's got that sort of omniscient narrator, but mm. it's this crazy narrator who mm -hmm. is yeah. able to tap into her yeah. thoughts and into right. the thoughts of what's going on. Right. Right. And the satirical sense of it yeah. is just, yeah. you know, it's so resonant. And yeah. uh, I thank you for it because it really painted a picture for me of what went on in the intellectual life of so many people right, of what they right, had to yeah, do yeah. and, and I, you know I, I didn't want to make it too i hope it's not too heavy because it's I, not heavy no uh, no no in what fact what i wanted was to keep it keep it serious but light uh, it's serious it's light the characters are 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 spectacular you know what juno said is is really really quite true mm. there's a woman that i've been reading who i know has written about this she has a new book coming out called dominica uh angie cruz oh, of course who I, also I, yeah, says yeah. about 
your book that uh, Medina has written a novel in which one could lose oneself, just as the aspiring poet Elena is embroiled in the chaos of one of the most compelling moments in Cuban history. The prose is classic Medina, rich, insightful, and I love this word, delectable. It really is. Yeah, she was. She was. She was very kind. <laughs> well, it's you know, Pablo. It's hard not to be kind to you. But I know that these people were not just being kind. But this is a book that everyone should run out and get. And lastly, I just want to ask you about the cover. You know, um, we've had on the podcast people who've talked about typewriters and mm. all of that. And so you've got a parrot and a typewriter on the cover. Without giving too much away, talk a little bit about. Why you chose those images? For the well, I didn't choose the images. Well, why the, the why the, the designer? The, the designer did because the parrot. There's a parrot featured in in the novel, Pity the parrot, uh, and it's a Cuban parrot. There is a kind of parrot called a Cuban parrot, and so I had to. I kind of argued with the designer because that doesn't look to me like a Cuban parrot. Uh, and, and likewise, uh, uh, the typewriter. One of the typewriters featured in the book is a red Olivetti manual. And this is a Smith Corona electric. I know because I had one of these at one point in my life. Uh, and so I argued with her about that, but she said she couldn't find an image of a red Olivetti. Uh, and we already discussed that next time yes, we'll find her time. that image. Right, right. Yeah, I'll, I'll well, rely on you because I know you, you collect them. Pablo Medina, the book is called The Cuban Comedy. I thank you so much for being on The Literary Life. Thank you, and it's, it's a pleasure having spoken with you.